Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddham dhammang sangang namasang So I'm uh, pleased to offer some reflections tonight that I hope will be helpful with practice. Um, it's been especially nice for me today to start to meet some of you and, and find out what's going out, on out there. Uh, Ajahn and uh, the Ajans and I were talking about, you know, just you sort of, uh, for the first few days of a retreat, you sort of just kind of go with uh, your intuition as to what's needed and, and trust that you're uh, getting a sense of it, picking things up uh, correctly, and just trying to feed uh, some things that might be useful or helpful uh, to guide the process that we're all going through. But now as you get to, you know, you actually put some flesh on the bone of that when you actually start talking to people to find out what's actually going on. So given some of the um, things that we've been offering so far and some of the things I've been listening to today and the... Um, you know, various interview groups, I thought it would be helpful to take uh, some time tonight and just um, reflect on the practice itself. Uh, so just to get a sense of, um, in a way, to look at the technology that we're using, the methodology of the Buddha. And I wanted to turn to the, the basic uh, meditation instruction Uh, and see if, in fact, we understand what it is that he's saying and how to use it. You know, I think that you'll find, certainly many people in this room have already read the sutta and studied it to some extent, and for some people it might be new. But no matter what the situation, uh, whether it's new or old, um, I'd just like to invite us to listen to what he's saying here with new ears. I find this teaching to be incredibly simple. I think you'll hear the language to be so incredibly simple. And yet hidden underneath it is an absolutely brilliant technology of the mind. So I'd just like to uh, start with um, going back to this morning when we were doing the morning chanting. And, you know, we're doing the, the full chanting now with this whole litany of um, identification with various aspects of the body and mind. You know, identification with the body and feeling and uh, various aspects of mental uh, phenomenon. Uh, and the whole um, crux of the meditation practice is trying to get at um, a new relationship with this. Because what he's saying, in, uh, for example, in that, in, in that um, chanting that we're doing in the morning is that uh, the identification with sensation, feeling, and thought is what constitutes our suffering. That if we look at our experience, the totality of our experience can be summed up in these three things. 
there is sensation, there is feeling, and there is thought. And that what's happening in a way, which is fascinating as a meditator to begin to watch and see how it's happening, is that we are completely caught up in that, identified with that, with our experience at those three levels, such that uh, it's almost as if we're relating to our experience instead of actually having the experience, <laughs> you know, and and um, it's in that relating and that identifying with uh, these aspects of our experience that um, we suffer. It is the, the Buddhist definition of suffering is being completely preoccupied, if you will, with this whole body-mind process. So this uh, uh, practice, you know, and the instruction that's offered in the Satipatthana Sutta is trying to, to get us to a new relationship with that whole experience. Um, in a way, it's, a, it's like uh, cultivating very gradually um, a, a, a much greater impartiality towards it instead of constantly grabbing and picking it up and relating to it through some sense of me and it. It's the wildest thing when you watch it. It's like we pick up sensation, feeling, and thought, and we're relating to it. And that um, whole process is what constitutes our suffering. So what I find here in this is um, just the most amazing heartfelt technology to get us to uh, break out of that bad habit, if you will. It's just a bad habit of grasping at things uh, that aren't ours <laughs> that, that, uh, and, and identifying with them to the point where we believe it's who we are. We believe we are this body and mind. And this teaching is trying to get us to see if that is actually true. It's very profound. Is that, is that the, the reality? Or um, are we relating to it inappropriately? So um, the process involves uh, a, a gradual reseeding, if you will, from the content of our experience. And um, in, in the process of doing that, at, at the same time, investigating that uh, experience and discovering for ourselves what is the real, uh, what is real. And in essence, um, establishing a new way of living life like living life, you know, it's, like, it's almost like we're living life sort of once removed from experience, a generation away from it. And this is trying to get us back to the full and direct experience of it. So what gets cultivated in this process is an ever-growing detachment. What we call detachment is like not picking up um, sensation, feeling, and thought in the way that we're most accustomed to. And, you know, it's a, it's, an, it's a process whereby that quality of detachment matures and, and um, grows until one is able to be with the actual complete and direct experience. That, the, and the experience of that is what Buddha is describing as the, the utter bliss uh, of Nibbana, just being completely and totally present. It's like not having a quarrel with any aspect of our experience. Just being with it. So he, uh, we've talked a little bit about um, 
some of the ways that we do this uh, as a methodology uh, to turn around the way that we're relating to the body. Uh, and um, we've talked about uh, the, the practice of uh, Anapanasati, being with the breathing, and uh, Ajahn Punadhamma was also talking about clear comprehension. We've all talked about the postures. I mean, this is all part of the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, learning to uh, relate to these in a new way. But now I just want to turn um, to um, another element that's included in uh, this uh, first part of the sutta, which is, um, has to do with relating appropriately to the body, to rupa. And here the, the, the Buddha is um, inviting us to examine our physical experience uh, according to or in line with uh, what are called the four primary elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Uh, so that the effort here is to, um, in a way, uh, get under all of this uh, picking up and being preoccupied with experience and actually settle enough to discern what is actually happening in the body in the purest sense. What is our experience? So just listen to what he says. And he's talking to the the monks at, at this time. A monk reviews this body, however it may be placed or disposed, in terms of the elements. There are in the body the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. And he's inviting us to contemplate that, these experiences very directly. So, you know, this is something that we can do as we're um, practicing here together this week. So turning uh, to the earth element, uh, the way that it's defined in other suttas is that it's this uh, quality of, of solidity and heaviness, kind of a weightiness, the uh, density, say the coarseness of physicality. And um, one can see it, one can experience it very directly. It's quite evident in um, all kinds of things that you'll be doing throughout the course of the day. So it's like to tune into these. Like, for example, um, in the morning when you get up, you know, there's the, the movement of the body out of the reclining position and uh, to stand upright. And you can, there's, a, there's a heaviness about that. Uh, if you uh, stay in a very still place and, and contemplate the movement of that, you will feel that. It's a, a weighty, earthy, solid uh, sensation. Or you might notice it when you're brushing your teeth or something like that, or bumping into doors or <laughs> whatever it might be, or doing the walking meditation and feeling... Um, the experience of the earth under the feet. So the effort here then is to settle down and to feel that experience very directly. The air element is um, this quality that it's evident, it sort of shows itself in kind of titillating, tingly kind of things, uh, vibrations in the body. You might notice it just sitting here sometimes, certainly evident in the experience of the breathing itself, but also evident in just kind of the ripples and currents 
In fact, it's, uh, it's said to be quite associated with the, the nervous system, the whole electrical systems of the body, you know, the, the currents. Um, and one can have a very direct experience of this, just settling and feeling the earth element. And the fire element um, is the, that which is the, the, the temperature, you know, the, the hot, the cold. Uh, one can have a sense sometimes that when one's really cold that, you know, the heat element, the fire element is absent. But it's said that it's actually there. It's just that what we're coming into contact with is uh, warmer or colder than what we're experiencing internally. So just noticing how during the course of the day the temperature changes uh, internally, but also in the room. You can feel it as you move indoors and outdoors and things like this. And the the water element is an interesting one. There's actually some controversy among the scholars as to whether or not one can experience this directly uh, because it's it's said to be the element that has to do with cohesion, that which holds things together, so that you might become aware of it, like if you mix water with flour, and that which was kind of all uh, fly away is now uh, mixed into a, a sort of a, a gel, and the water is what's making that um, hold together. So it's the element that's actually keeping the whole system, it's kind of like the glue, you know, keeping the whole system together. But I think... Um, you can also say that you can experience this directly. Obviously, like right now I'm feeling a little dryness in the mouth. That's the, the absence of the water element. Um, or you know, just the, the various moistures of the body, the sweat and tears and, and uh, blood, uh, all of these kinds of things. One, one can just contemplate as this, you know, if, if you if, uh, notice what one is experiencing from moment to moment in a physical way, it's going to be one of these, or a combination of these um, four elements. So it's said that they're all there all of the time, and uh, the effort is to just tune in and contemplate according to these. So you can do this in a couple of ways, and... I'd invite you to um, to try these. Um, you know, the nuns actually uh, taught me the, the one method, which is like if one is having difficulty particularly, just getting a sense of what's being said experientially, because we're not accustomed to noticing or experiencing the body in this way, then you can do um, just highlight one against the backdrop of experience so that you might spend a day and say one is just really going to try to tune into and get a sense of the air element or the earth element or for a period of a sitting or a part of a day um, or even one nun said she was doing this, you know, just taking each one and tuning in like this for a period of a month and just really trying to up the ante, you know, get increase her sensitivity to um, this element, this experience at this elemental level. So that's uh, one thing that one can do. Uh, Or you can um, sort of hold it more globally, like settle back and 
uh, especially at a time like this in the retreat, where you've already established an, enough presence of mind to be able to observe in this way. Um, and this approach would be more like uh, one where it's kind of like a juggler with a bunch of balls in the air. You know, you sit back and you just notice the change and the play of the elements from one to another. You know, now you're very aware physically of, say, a hardness, uh, a wetness, a dryness, this kind of thing. So this can be um, really helpful for tuning into it and be, being uh, beginning to, to see it more directly. But, you know, you might ask at this point, well, why? Why do you want to do that? And I think it's really important to understand why one's doing it. Uh, we want to be able to see the body as the body or in the body. The language of the sutta is interesting. See the body as the body or see the body in the body. It's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of like, what's he saying in that? It, just noticing how um, in a finger snap we have a physical sensation and something in our mental apparatus picks that up and starts playing with it or builds on it. And, uh, and very quickly, one can have um, you know, the experience of, of just uh, conceptualizing about what that is. And one of the best ways you can see this is um, working with pain. It's kind of like going in reverse. Here, you, we, we sit... And so many people have been talking about the various uh, physical pains that we're experiencing. And, um, you know, just look at that as a, uh, what's, being, what's uh, being said in that. There's pain is actually uh, conceptual. You know, there, there, there isn't any such thing as pain, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy, but in, 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 in the purest sense, there isn't any such thing. It's, it's a concept that we've given to um, the way, a certain constellation of the elements and how they're behaving in a certain way, in a, in a, in a particular moment. And I can remember this one, one time on, in my own meditation experience where um, I'd be really began to see this for the first time. And I was on retreat here at IMS, and I was a work retreat, and, and um, I was working in housekeeping. And I was given the task, I can't even remember what it was, but something that required uh, that I reach for something that was on the top shelf in the uh, housekeeping office. I think it was rags or something. And, um, you know, not being particularly mindful in the whole process, I did... I took a chair from the floor. I couldn't reach it, and I couldn't find a ladder. And so I put a chair up on top of the desk. And then I climbed up on top uh, uh, via another chair on top of the desk and on top of the chair on top of the desk and tried to go for um, what it was that I was reaching for. Well, you know, it wasn't a very stable structure. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, very quickly, you know, it just all came crumbling down. And uh, I fell, you know, clearly uh, four or five feet or more and uh, really injured my knee. And being a kind of person who's kind of duty-bound, you know, it was hard to take on that level completely because uh, here I was a work retreat and I wasn't able to complete my duty 
uh, I had injured myself enough to need to take to the bed for a few days. But I thought, well, let's just make good use of this time. <laughs> I mean, after the usual grumbling and groaning and uh, beating up on myself and hating myself for having been so foolish, you know. Just um, lying in the bed and noticing the actual experience uh, that I was calling pain. And because I was getting quite still, I was really able to see, you know, that in the purest sense, what it was, was like, it was like a throbbing, thrashing. There was a vibrating. There was like a little, you know, little tickle, tickle, tickle like this. Then there might be a, a cold, icy, stabbing, gashing feeling. You know, and then a little bit of heat over here. And then it would move. And, and then it would, the place that I was looking at, it wouldn't be there. It, it would be someplace else. And it was a fascinating investigation, a fascinating exploration. And it, it, it uh, moved me so much that I just burst out laughing. And it was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Is that what all the fuss has been about? It's, it's just hardness and softness and jiggling and, you know, cold and heat. And if, if, we, if we look at the physical experience like this, even for just a second, even for just a few seconds, it will begin to break up this whole fascination with the body and identification with the body as being who we are. So just to encourage you, invite you to begin to look at experience from this um, elemental perspective. The, the net result of holding things conceptually is that we're not at all connected with what we're actually experiencing. You know, so that, that's where you get this sense of being caught up in a condition or a state that is actually removed from reality. And so it's, it's, it's ironic because particularly with pain, um, what gets set up is that if I could just get away from this, we're just holding it as pain and then it becoming something that we have to get away from, what we're actually doing is complicating and increasing the, what we're calling pain because now we've added this whole mental aspect to it. So the uh, effort then is to just settle back and be with it as it is, which is what we're fighting and struggling and resisting all of the time. But the experience of that is, is lovely. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's not only something that we can endure, we're actually already enduring it. It's actually already fine, except for the way that we're relating to it and our preoccupation with that. Can you see that? It's fascinating. I was watching uh, this uh, the other night when Ajahn was uh, giving a, his talk. Those uh, of you in the room who are menopausal women will relate to this. <laughs> Where I was just sitting here minding my own business and uh, listening to Ajahn's talk, and up came this incredible fiery <laughs> energy, you know, it's just like all of a sudden I'm, my whole body is completely on fire. And um, in an instant, 
I, I had this anxiety that I was going to spontaneously combust. You know? <laughs> and I watched as my mind made associations with that experience. And in a flash, I was remembering a book that my mother gave me when I was an adolescent. And it was this book called, you know, it's like a collection of all these paranormal experiences. It was called Strange as It Seems, you know. <laughs> and there was a, a story in there about a farmer's wife who spontaneously combusted, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, it's like farmer's wife spontaneously combusts, you know. All that's left is ash and a charred floorboards in the kitchen, you know. <laughs> and I had this image of, myself, of, of that happening here. Just this, all of a sudden she's there and then there's just a poof. Uh, of ash and dust, you know. <laughs> but that's what will happen. I mean, you can see what we're up against because that happens so quickly, you know. And um, if I hadn't seen it, that what that could become, we all know, you know, we've been sitting with this for several days, what moments like that will become. You can uh, be lost in them for hours, dreaming and, and uh, dealing with something that isn't even happening. <laughs> it's amazing. So working with the um, elements like this also has a tremendous effect on just bringing about a, a certain calm in our demeanor. You know, what's going on much of the time is that we are constantly in search of a, a state of homeostasis for these elements. You know, we, we want... Uh, earth, air, fire, and water to be in perfect balance. And that does happen. You know, every now and then you'll notice it. It's like that moment where you just, oh, wow, (laughs) I feel good. (laughs) You know, it's just like everything is easy and comfortable in the physical system. You know, and so it does happen. One doesn't want to say that it's not possible. But most of the time, um, that is not our condition. And so it doesn't make any sense to constantly be wanting it. The nature of the elements is to constantly be moving and playing and uh, arising and passing away in different degrees and different magnitudes. And then our job as human beings who have incarnated here, is to experience that and to know it. And once we get it the way that these work and that that is all that our experience is, just feel what that would do for the the psyche, for the mind. You know, you begin to just get a lot more calm in relation to what's going on with the body. So then there's the, uh, the contemplation of feeling. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating feeling as feelings? Here, a monk, feeling a pleasant feeling, knows that he feels a pleasant feeling. Pe- feeling a painful feeling, he knows that he feels a painful feeling. Feeling a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant, he knows that he is feeling a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. It's like it's so simple. (laughs) 
Why, why isn't it that simple? <laughs> but just getting a sense of what he's saying here. Um, talking about feeling, we're not talking about emotion, but the actual experience of pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain. Um, and I, I remember one time in my meditation just trying desperately to uh, get a sense of how this was happening. I could see it. I could see that there was pleasure and pain and sort of this ozone state that was nothing much was happening at all. But uh, wanting to get a more precise sense of how that was arising. So I kept watching and watching and watching. This went on for several weeks, actually. And finally, I just gave up on that whole notion of seeing it happen because it really isn't important. But what's important about feeling is what happens as a result of not seeing it correctly and not being able to be with feeling in a simple and raw way, not being able to be with pleasure and pain and neither. So we know that these form the basis of greed, hatred, and delusion. A feeling that uh, is not attended to wisely, pleasant feeling becomes greed. Unpleasant feeling becomes hatred. And the, the feeling of neither can sort of bring about a state of either restless agitation for wanting something else to replace it, or just a dullness and a checking out. So the Buddha describes these conditions as uh, the, the unwholesome roots of suffering. Greed, hatred, and delusion are the actual Buddhist definition of suffering. So you can see how important uh, this uh, capacity to tune in to the direct experience of feeling becomes. Because if we don't see it, the habit, the general habit of the mind, the highly conditioned habit, is to move into these uh, suffering and difficult states. And you can watch that happen. So the effort is to, uh, in a way, it's kind of turn around and face the monster. Be willing and, and uh, to open to the actual direct experience of pleasure and pain and neither. So if we don't do that, then what we'll move into very quickly is the states that are just much more weighty and karmically um, heavy and painful. So that whole movement, I think it's really important to realize that what the Buddha is saying, that movement is not foreordained. We don't have to move into these states of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the key to not doing that is uh, right here in this mindfulness of feeling, opening to the experience of feeling. So you have to see, we have to see this for ourselves and uh, notice it. Um, for myself, I, I remember one time when I was on solitary retreat, I was at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Society, and they used to have a um, uh, a little kuti that you could sit in, and you could uh, uh, have a, a solitary retreat, sort of off to the side of the center. Uh, and I had uh, I was doing that for a period of uh, several weeks or a month, uh, a number of years ago. 
And it was uh, this time of year where the, the seasons, kind of like now, where the seasons are changing and uh, the temperature keeps changing. And so, uh, you know, you never know uh, from one moment to the next how it's going to be. The nights can be very cold, the days can be quite hot and humid, and it can even go in reverse. So I was sitting, and I hadn't gotten very still yet. I was just the first uh, week or so of the retreat, and um, just responding as one does to the experience of uh, uh the changing temperature, and the experience of the, the uh, pain of that, the pleasure or the pain of that. Uh, and I, I was alternately like putting on a blanket and putting on my socks, and then as it, as it got uh, cool, and then as it got hot again, taking off the blanket and taking off the socks. And then as it got cool again, you know, putting the socks back on, putting the blanket back on. And this was going on back and forth over a period of a day of days where I wasn't really getting in doing it consciously. You know how we do. We just kind of uh, move to find uh, the more pleasant abiding and uh, are not really noticing it, um, not letting it fully into our consciousness. And then uh, one, uh, one time where I could feel the rush of the heat from having the blanket on and the socks and feeling too hot again. Uh, In an instant, it was like, I just threw the blanket off and tore off the socks and threw them against the wall. You know, just this incredible rage arose in me and just violent action to get this, uh, this heat, you know, away, to get away from the heat. And, um it really got my attention. <laughs> it's like, whoa, <laughs> what's this? You know, just noticing this uh, incredible, incredible strong reaction to it. And I realized that I hadn't been seeing the changes and I hadn't been seeing my response to it. But like right now, right then in that moment, there was like this, this feeling of just being so sick and tired of constantly having to deal with this change. You know, it's like constantly having to adjust the system to find some sense of pleasure and to keep avoiding pain. Yet that's our experience, constantly. You know, so the effort here is to uh, notice it, to bring it more fully into our awareness so that one can get it and accept that our life is a constant movement between these two. There's, if we get that, then the reaction to one or the other, the picking it up and proliferating with it, is diminished dramatically. You know, and we find ourselves like I find myself over the the months and years of practice almost just experiencing uh, my, the, the whole uh, uh, myself at the feeling level is kind of like pulsing. You know, it's like one moment there's the contracting around pain, the next moment there's the delight and the expansion around delight and pleasure, and then the contracting and the expanding. And just being able to tune in 
to our experience at this level. Just noticing that movement, how we recoil and how we expand, how we recoil and expand. This is the direct experience of uh, pleasure and pain. And one can rest in that. (laughs) You can be happy in that. We can settle into that. And then this picking it up and trying to do something with it, make something out of it, will drop away. It's not necessarily so easy, you know, because you have to go against the tide to do that. The absolutely understandable and reasonable inclination is to get away from pain and go towards pleasure. You know, I think it's actually very linked. It's something that's uh, quite uh, in, sort of hardwired into the system. It's probably something that's operating at, operating at a very biological and instinctive level. And literally, then, uh, to be able to do this practice, one is taking on experience at that level. Because it might be the case that our uh, apparatus at this instinctive level uh, is sort of anti-enlightenment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not working uh, for us in our effort to become free. So literally, it's a, it's a case of taking that on, being willing to take that on. So then there's this very simple language again, contemplation of the mind. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, a monk knows a lustful mind as a lustful mind, a mind free from lust as free from lust, a hating mind as hating, a mind free from hate as free from hate, a deluded mind as deluded, an undiluted mind as undiluted, a contracted mind as contracted, a distracted mind as distracted, a developed mind as developed, an undeveloped mind as undeveloped, and so on. He goes through a, a litany of several mind states. And I don't think that he means to say that um, these are the only mind states that we enter into. But the point here being that one uh, is endeavoring to notice mind states and be aware of mind states and see them as mind states. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but that just, like, it boggles. It's a not a very common experience. That as soon as um, a, a, a mental state arises, we become completely identified with it, caught up in it, and construct with it, start to play with it, and build upon it. You know, it happens so quickly that we don't even know it and don't see it. And this is the process that the Buddha is talking about as being identified with mental phenomenon, identified with thoughts. So the effort here, then, is to begin to notice mind states. And, you know, we, we use, sometimes we use the mental noting, 
sometimes um, just the experience of getting a sense of it from within, that this is a mind state. Knowing the greedy mind as the greedy mind means not being greedy. You know, it means a condition that is outside of it, in a way, and looking at it, knowing it sort of phenomenologically, you know, noticing it as a, a state of mind. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I, I find this to be incredibly mature practice. You know, it's something that um, one develops over many months and many years in practice. Because with all of these, with the observing of sensation, of feeling, and thought, our usual condition in the unenlightened state is um, to be completely caught up in the content of each of these. And over time, through the some, sometimes just simply through the practice of breaking out of it, just the simple restraint and pulling ourselves out, but gradually over the months and years of practice, getting some inkling as to the pain and suffering that's involved in being caught up in it. And that begins to feed into the capacity to let go. You know, it's like our system is beginning to learn for itself that being identified and being completely caught up is, a, is, is painful. It's very painful. And so the, the, the grip begins to let go. And then you see this phenomenon um, which uh, is kind of like a, a maturing in this quality of detachment. You know, first it seems like we're just yanking ourselves out of things. And then um, one begins to, because there's a, more and more uh, understanding in the system, you begin to let go a lot more easily, don't you? Begin to move out of it when you see, oh, there it is again, okay, oh, okay, there it is again. There's not a whole lot of charge uh, around it, the, the tendency to turn it back on ourselves and hate ourselves for being caught uh, is getting diminished. And this matures o- over time to a point where uh, the Buddha uh, talks about it as a, the, the new relationship be- becomes one where um, we're actually becoming disenchanted with the whole process, the whole process of picking it up and getting caught. And that's really rich. That's really beautiful. You know, that not, it's no longer a case of having to yank ourselves out. It's like it's, at this point we're not even going into it anymore because we're beginning to see. But how that seeing takes place um, is really where um, this fourth foundation of mindfulness comes into play. And it's operating throughout the whole course of um, our meditation practice. And just consider this, um, what's being said in this fourth foundation of mindfulness. I think it really takes the practice to a whole nother level if we understand what he's saying here. Uh, Sometimes this fourth foundation is translated as, um, in this book, it's uh, contemplating mind objects as mind objects. But I saw a manuscript a, a number of years ago uh, of Bhikkhu Bodhi's, and 
he was translating this in a very different way that I found very, very helpful. He said, um, to think of it as contemplating the Dhamma, capital D, in the Dhammas, which is things, everything, just uh, the, the, uh, everything, uh, all phenomena. So that what he's saying then is we're beginning to understand our experience according to the Dhamma. And how this happens is actually um, part of the good fortune of being born a human being is uh, the way that uh, this mind works. Uh, This mind, which um, uh, we were were all kind of issued at the moment of our birth, it has the capacity to know itself. It has the capacity to look back on itself. This is fascinating when you consider it. It's, it's a phenomenon that's kind of called the mirror of the mind. It lots, you might notice it. Um, sometimes one gets, a, gets questions from meditators who want to know, well, you know, if, um, if there is the looking, well, who's doing the looking? You know, isn't that me? Yeah. Who, who, where's the self? Isn't the self the one that's observing? Isn't the knower? Aren't I the observer? And it's, uh, it's to notice that, no, no that's, that's actually not what's happening. <laughs> it's the mind, and as far as we know, this is a capacity that is uniquely human. It has the capacity to look at itself. And uh, this is what we, we talk about as sort of reflection, looking back on itself. And it's, a, it's an amazing capacity. And at the same time that it's doing that, it's also kind of sorting things out. There's a, a sort of an innately, um, innate capacity to sort of look for patterns in things and try to understand what is going on. So this fourth foundation of mindfulness is actually engaging that process optimally. The thing is, in the unconditioned or an unenlightened state, that capacity is almost completely used up thinking about ourselves. It's, you know, (laughs) all of that stuff that's going on all day. You know, is that self-absorption? It, it's turning. It's like the mind turning on itself in a very unhealthy and unskillful way, picking up things that are happening at since the level of sensation, feeling, and thought, creating a self around them, then creating all kinds of constructs around that, and making all kinds of problems and trying to solve them. And that is the condition that we find ourselves in, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, don't you see that as we're sitting here on the cushion day after day? So the, the Buddha is trying to get us to notice that capacity in a way and turn it towards liberation, use it uh, to contemplate Dhamma, Contemplate what's actually happening. 
And so this section of the, the sutta goes through um, different aspects of our experience and invites us to consider them in a new way. So I won't go into all of it because it's rather lengthy, but just to give you an idea, looking at um, what he says about the five hindrances. He says, Here a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the five hindrances. How does he do so? Here, monks, if sensual desire is present in him, a monk knows that it is present. If sensual desire is absent in himself, a monk knows that it is absent. And he knows how unarisen sensual desire comes to arise. And he knows how the abandonment of arisen sensual desire comes about. And he knows how the non-arising of the abandoned sensual desire in the future will come about. (laughs) That's some pretty interesting and intense stuff. What he's saying is that through the observing of sensual desire, for example, that over time we can and do develop the capacity to not only know the mind that is in the state, but to begin to discern through reflection and contemplation how it happened, how we disconnected, what makes it happen, what makes it disconnect, and actually get a a very clear sense of how to keep it from happening in the future. That's the process of liberation. And he does this, he goes through this as well with the factors of enlightenment. So it's not just difficult states that one is wanting to contemplate in this way. So it's, um, this one in particular points to one of the reasons why I uh, am so enamored of Ajahn Chah's teaching and the disciples of Ajahn Chah, because they're very keen on developing this reflective capacity. You know, the, the, little, the thoughts that we offer in the morning during the, the morning sitting, you know, are designed to, um, in a way, get us used to looking at experience in a reflective way and through the eyes of Dhamma. You know, so that it, it's almost like if, you, if we begin to look at things that way, then it sort of squeezes out the self-absorbed looking, you know. The mind can only do so much at once. And um, applying um, that capacity to reflection on Dhamma uh, is a, a lot more effective and helpful in the whole process of waking up. So just getting a sense in the overall picture of this sutta, what the Buddha is saying, trying to get us to relate anew to sensation, feeling, and thought. Not be so caught up in them, preoccupied with our experience at that level, but in a way step outside and know it from a a more detached perspective. And the irony is, the twist in that, from that detached posture, our experience is much more direct. It sounds like a paradox, but it's not in the experience of it. Let go, what one is letting go of is the tendency to pick it up and proliferate about it. That's where the detachment is. 
And what one is entering instead is the direct experience of sensation, feeling, and thought. And through that whole process of freeing oneself from this unhealthy relationship, one begins to see for oneself how it's all happening. (laughs) So here's the wisdom. You know, it's like, oh, I see it. You know, the, 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 the fourth foundation of mindfulness, in a way, is kind of like the ahas. It's the insight of insight meditation. One is beginning to get it. It's like, oh, oh, I get it. Yeah, I see. That's suffering. This is not suffering. <laughs> you know? Just watching myself today, I was telling Ajahn earlier that... Uh, you know, sometimes I can go into a fair amount of mental torment about having to give a talk, you know. <laughs> it's like this daunting notion. And spin, you know, one can spin out endlessly um, and worrying about, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and then just noticing that this is a state of worry. This is, a, this is the mind state of worry. And... It's picking up an idea that is unpleasant or fearful and creating a story around it and then relating to that story. But the reality is that you're not giving the talk. <laughs> it's not happening now. You know? The whole um, condition of anxiety and worry is a fabrication around ideas and notions that we find unpleasant. It's fascinating. And then we're lost in the suffering of that, and can be for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> Days, lifetimes. <laughs> I'm reminded of that, one, that line from Steel Magnolias, you know? I'm not a mean person. I've just been in a bad mood for 40 years, you know. <laughs> it's just like that. <laughs> so, just I hope uh, some of the things that I've offered tonight are helpful to guide you in your practice. Um, just to say that once again, that this is a very, very precious time, and um, one wants to use it very well. And so getting a clear understanding of what the tools are that we're working with, what they're designed to do, and learning to use them well, you know, this is the, that this is the ticket. Uh, and certainly uh, putting a, a, a heavy dose of uh, kindness and gentleness in the mix will make it all go down a lot easier. So I offer this for your reflection tonight.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.